to the rock show 172 show and we're talking about sam cook and it's it's one of the first of the black history artists that we have is one of our most popular show every couple of years we um review some artists that are from um from black history that are pretty much iconic singer songwriter and um sam cook is up there with um the rest of the artists that we have um talk about right mike what do you think yeah. uh, sam cook will go oh uh where, where do i think he stands i mean sam cook is is one of the most influential artists ever okay uh the guy was called the king of soul okay uh and he was and uh his music resonates even today uh the recordings are 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 fantastic They're, the producing was was perfect um he had a beautiful voice and he was really the first black artist to really cross over in a, in a, in a huge way uh, into white audiences in a time when that didn't really happen. And unfortunately, segregation was still happening. We're talking the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Uh, you know, but there was something about Sam Cooke that resonated with all kinds of people uh in, even in white America, I mean, he had plenty of number one hits on the pop charts, even more on the R and B charts. But I mean, he can't. It really was like the first crossover artist. I mean, guys like you know Chuck Berry in the in the rock and roll world. Yeah, I mean, he crossed over, but it was more to like younger kids and stuff at that time. This was I'm talking about in the adult world. Okay, he was very he was very well accepted into mainstream America. Uh, uh, you know, sadly, his life was was cut short in a in a tragic shooting, which we'll go into a little bit. But uh, this guy also, uh, what kind of goes unrecognized, and I'm going to talk about it quite a bit, is his business sense. He uh, was one of the first black artists to really try to demand rights. For his own music and you know he's he he teamed up with people to uh start his own record company or his own publishing and licensing companies and things like that and that was kind of not heard of among well, the black the, um, who, 
Mike, who was the other black uh, artist that we talked that he was pretty good business? Like, was it a jazz guy that he knew how to pay out the band? Oh, uh, uh, my, you know, Miles Davis probably. Uh, you know, he 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 was very, you know, my way or the highway kind of thing. Uh, I think you're talking about him. I mean, it's it. What Sam? It was, Cook another, it was another guy. It was a month ago. So he worked in Chicago. But he knew he had this business sense that he knew he paid all his band members very good. Oh, could have been Muddy Waters. Could have been, you know, I mean, these guys, these guys would take care of their own. But what Sam Sam set his sights on, you know, producing people and really creating this whole industry. And his life was cut short and he didn't get to see all that. But the amount of success this guy had, was really unbelievable. So I'll go into it here. Yeah, it's um, amazing for a black artist like that, especially at that time. He yeah. crossed over. Popular well, I mean, yeah, there's there's no doubt he crossed over, and uh, the you know he was a good looking guy, and it was like well accepted in 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 you know white America, whatever that is, and uh, <clears throat> you know um, it's just a shame that you know he died at 33 years old. Amazing. You know, and, uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and he did better than the Twenty Seven Club. He did. The, he did better than the Twenty Seven Club. Yes, but still tragically cut short. Yeah. But so he was born Samuel Cook, C O O K. It's important yeah. to notice that because he would change it later on and add an E at the end of his name. Now he was born Samuel Cook on January twenty second, nineteen thirty one, uh, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Okay. Uh, he only lived there till he was about two or three years old. And then his family would relocate to Chicago where he began singing as a young child. Okay. Uh, with his siblings, he was one of several kids. He was the fifth of, of eight children, I believe, uh, born to Reverend Charles Cook and his wife, Annie May. Now he would attend Wendell Phillips Academy high school in Chicago which actually was the same high school that Nat King Cole attended just a few years before that. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, he was 14 years old when he joined the gospel group, the Highway QCs. Prior to that, he was uh, in something called the Singing Children. Um, very involved in gospel music early on, obviously because of his reverend father. But uh, the group, the Highway QCs, had been around for years and years, and, uh, and he joined them. Uh, it was during this time that he would become friends also with a neighbor of his, a gospel singer named Lou Rawls. Okay. Now, in 1950, at age 19, Sam would replace gospel tennis singer R.H. Harris as the lead singer of the gospel group, The Soul Stirrers. They were another well-respected gospel group. That was around for years. Hey, uh, so, will you consider uh, Sam Cooke like um, gospel? Singing prodigy? Y yeah, I mean, he had a great voice at a young age, and and his father was known to his father was very uh, very positive with him uh, most of the time, and and pushed his singing and and considered it a gift from God. And he told Sam Cooke, you know, he told his son, you know, if you don't use this this voice you're going against god you know so you need to use wow. this voice so because it was a gift you know so yeah. um now rh harris left the soul stirrers but got them signed to specialty records and 
kind of acted on behalf of the group. Now, their first recording under Cook's leadership was the song Jesus Gave, Gave Me Water in 1951. They also recorded Peace in the Valley, uh, How Far Am I from Canaan, Jesus Paid the Debt, and One More River, among many others, some of which he would write himself. That's another thing is uh, Sam Cooke, you know, wrote the majority of the music he recorded. Wow. Okay. Uh, especially in his solo years after he would leave the gospel world. Uh, but his so gospel. pretty much started as a gospel singer, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And then yeah absolutely. Over. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he crossed over into the pop world, and that was something that was not really heard of. Gospel singers kind of stay in that. It's, it's almost yeah. like there's a. There's a stigma with them if they get into the secular music world. It's kind of like they're getting away from religion. So you don't see that too much. But uh, Cook is often credited with, with bringing gospel music into the mainstream with the younger crowd. Um, when he was with the Soul Stirrers, he was known to attract a, a wild audience uh, as a gospel singer. Okay, He was attracting... Young women, young guys, you know, they would they would rush the stage. It was almost like Beatlemania before Beatlemania. He really had, yeah, it was almost like Elvis. Like Elvis, like Elvis right? You know, he really had that appeal, um, and you know, people were starting to to notice him. Okay, in 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 the pop world, they're like, hey, there's this guy, you know, in the gospel that's singing gospel, but he's great, you know. So in 1956. Um, Sam Cooke released his first solo single. Uh, it was a song called Lovable. And it was a remake of a gospel song called Wonderful. And it was released under the alias of Dale Cooke. He didn't use his name, okay? Because there was still that, that stigma that he was a gospel singer and had to, and had to sing just gospel, okay? But he was changing, and, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to branch out. Okay, uh, but he did that as Dale Cook to kind of like not alienate his gospel base. But that kind of makes sense, you know. You yeah, I mean, he was it? taking a chance. He was taking a chance doing it, but nobody, nobody was fooled because he had such a distinctive voice. Everybody knew who he was, even though he used a different name. They're like, "No, that's that's Sam Cook." <laughs> they but knew you know who he was. You do that. You do that code so. You can separate both gender. I, I do under under Sam Cooke. I am this uh, soul singer. Under Dale Cook, I'm this pop singer. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was going in that direction, you know. And um, he got the blessing of of Art Roop Rupi or Roop. Not sure how to pronounce his name. Art Rupi. Uh, he was the head of Specialty Records that that signed Sam Cooke, and uh, he would allow him after this record to record under his own name okay but he went on record saying that he didn't really like this direction that sam was going uh he he wanted sam sam had a producer at specialty records that he was tight with named bumps blackwell and yeah everybody had great names back then um now roop wanted him to be kind of like a little richard type okay that wasn't sam's thing he wasn't going to be yelling and screaming he had like a crooning kind of voice not that richard didn't little richard had an amazing voice but uh just different different kind of music and 
you know, one time he walked in and uh, he walked into a recording session. I'm talking about Rupee. And he saw Sam Cooke and he was he was singing a Gershwin, Gershwin tune. Okay, like a show tune. Okay. Yeah. He got all pissed off and, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, don't make this kind of music and do this and do that. And ended up having a big argument. And uh, Blackwell and Cook would leave Specialty Records over this this big argument that ensued. Um, the song Lovable on Specialty was not a big hit, okay, but it wasn't exactly a bomb either. So yeah. it, showed, it showed that there was a lot of potential for Cook, okay, in this in this in this industry, and not just in gospel, okay. He was going to cross over. Yeah. Now. Uh, Cook had said, you know, that he he loved gospel music. Uh, it was a popular genre, but he felt his future was in pop music, and uh, he wanted to branch out into that. So he went to his father uh, to talk to him about this and said, I'm serious. I want to get out of gospel. And his father gave him his blessing. He said, you know, you you like I said before, you know, you have this gift. You got to use it. So to symbolize this kind of fresh start that he was making in pop music, Sam would attach an E at the end of his name, C-O-O-K-E now. He would spell it that way just to symbolize a change. And he would spell it that way. Right. He would spell it that way for the rest of his life. Um, in 1957, Cook appeared on ABC's The Guy Mitchell Show. And that same year, he signed to Keen Records. His What's first... Big deal going to the um, the Guy Mitchell show. Guy Mitchell show was a popular show, yeah, on on Channel Seven, ABC. Yeah, would that be considered like almost like a band, American Bandstand, or even like going into? Um... Uh, he would he would be on Bandstand eventually. Uh, not at not in nineteen fifty seven yet. Uh, it, it was it wasn't until he had his first big hit at that point with "You Send Me," okay, okay. which happened in fifty seven as soon as he signed to Keen Records. Uh, okay. What I didn't know. And until I did my research, and, and I'm a big Sam Cooke fan, but I didn't know that You Send Me was actually a B-side. Okay. okay. It was, right. It, it wasn't meant to be the A-side of the single. Uh, the A-side was a song called Summertime, which is a good song, but yeah. it, it everyone, for some reason, fell in love with the B-side, You Send Me. It spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard R&B charts. The song crossed over into the mainstream, spending three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop charts, and it elevated him from earning two hundred bucks a week to five thousand bucks a week. Wow. Okay, so right I'm away out of the gate. Question: How many times has the song been released as a big as a B side, and then become bigger than the one on the A side? Is that it's happened. It's happened. It's happened a lot in those years when when singles were all the rage and 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 yeah. everyone was more concerned about that than albums uh it would happen sometimes you know you you, you put the a side and the djs listen to it and they go ah you know i like this side better and they would play that and and okay. sometimes yeah i mean it, it it was hit or miss most of the time everybody went with the a side but there were yeah. occasions when b sides did better i mean it so many bands we've talked about that's that's happened you know okay um, yeah, it is. It's it's just one of those things that used to happen. Now, um, in 1958, a year later, Cook performed for the famed Cavalcade of Jazz concert, okay, that was produced by Leon Heflin Sr., who was like an old jazz guy. 
Uh, it was always held at the Shrine Auditorium in L.A. Uh, this was on August 3rd of 1958. The other headliners for this were Little Willie John, Ray Charles, wow. Ernie Freeman, and Bo Rambo. Now, Sammy Davis Jr. was also like an MC. Uh, he was there to, to um, crown the winner of Miss Cavalcade of Jazz Contest. So the event also featured several uh, prominent Los Angeles DJs. Wow. It was, it was a big showcase for Cook. Okay. Yeah. He, was, he was really like headlining. So yeah, that was like the who's who's in the music business. You yeah. Yeah. Well, in R&B, R&B and jazz and stuff, you know, and he was still he was still was crossing over. OK. And that was his base, his original base. So Cook signed right after that with RCA Victor in January of 1960. Uh, he was offered a guaranteed hundred thousand dollars by the label producers. Uh, Hugo and Luigi, they were two popular guys on that label. Uh, one of his first RCA Victor singles was the song Chain Gang, which reached number two on the pop charts. Yeah. And it was followed by more hits, including Sad Mood, Cupid, that's a great tune, yep. Bring It On Home To Me, another great one. Uh, Lou Rawls sings backup vocals on Bring It On Home To Me, uh, Another Saturday Night, and Twisting The Night Away. These were all in a row. These, these hits were released. You couldn't, get away, you couldn't get away from Sam Cooke in 1960, okay? Yeah. He, he was all over the radio. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because this was a time also where rock and roll kind of took a backseat to some of these, like, more poppy singers. You know, Elvis was in the Army. Uh, Chuck Berry might have been in jail, don't quote me. Okay, there was he was having some problems bringing girls across state lines, that kind of shit. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis had gone country, so the original 1955 rock and roll guys really in 1960 had kind of gone away. Everything was kind of underground, and you had Sam Cooke who kind of had his ear to some of that. Okay, but was more of a more of a, a pop singer. But there was. You know, there was an R&B element to what he was doing. Um, in 61, he would start his own record label called SAR Records with uh, J.W. Alexander and his manager, Roy Crane. The label would soon include some artists that, that were famous called the Sims Twins. Um, another one would be the Valentinos, who were really Bobby Womack and his brothers, Bobby Womack, would go on to a fantastic career. Um, Mel Carter and Johnny Taylor were also in that that uh, that label. Uh, Cook then created a publishing imprint and management firm called CAGS, K-A-G-S. Now, like most R&B artists at the time, Cook focused on singles, okay? In all, he had 29 top 40 hits on the pop charts and even made wow. you know more than that in the R&B okay now he was a prolific songwriter he wrote a lot of his stuff um that he recorded and he also had a hand in arrangements okay in the studio and producing in spite of recording mostly singles though he did release a well-received blues album um in 1963 when i say blues it was blues influenced i i listened yeah. to it I listened to it yesterday. It's called Night Beat. And uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely got some blues 
influence. Not a lot of like guitar or anything like that, but just in the vocals. Um, his most critically acclaimed studio album was called Ain't That Good News. Uh, and that's that featured five singles, and that was released in 1964. Mostly he was about the singles, but he did have a couple of long plays in there. In 1963, though, Cook signed a five-year contract for uh, Alan Klein to manage CAG's music and SAR records and made him his manager. Okay, uh, He was in love with Klein when he met Klein. He was like, this guy is uh is gonna help my career he's gonna get me good deals uh he's gonna run this the the publishing company uh but some people in 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 his circle were setting off alarm bells they didn't like alan klein now alan klein was just starting out at that time okay after sam cook he would go on to manage the beatles and rip them off. And he would go on to manage the Rolling Stones and rip them off. Okay. So Klein is not a good guy. Uh, to this day, the Rolling Stones don't have all the rights that they should to their early music. And that's because of Alan Klein. All right. He started a company called Abco. And so he, why did Cook like him so much? <clears throat> well, it, it, he must have fed him a line of shit that, he, that Cook bought. Okay, uh, uh, you know we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and he did come across right away with a with a great deal because he negotiated with R he renegotiated with RCA Victor. Okay, he told Cook, "I'm gonna get you a much better deal." What Klein was good at, and how he would he would bait these artists, is he would say, "Listen, these companies, um, they hold back royalties." There's a lot of things in the contracts that there's loopholes. They can hold certain royalties and not give them to you. You may not even know about them. He's like, I know how to go through all that and get you money that's owed to you. Okay. And uh, this was back in the day when artists, you know, regularly got ripped off. Okay. And they knew they were getting ripped off. Sometimes, sometimes they didn't know. But even if they did know, there wasn't a hell of a lot that they could do about it. And Klein was one of these guys who was promising Cook, who was Cook's whole thing was his business sense. He wanted to, you know, make sure he had control over everything as much as he could. Yeah, and Klein promised that. So he negotiated a, a brand new deal with RCA for five years. It was technically three years plus two option years with with uh, the label. Mm -hmm. um, they started a holding company. It was almost like a a tax shelter yeah. and it was called tracy limited it was named after uh, of uh, one of sam cook's daughters tracy um it, it 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 was managed by jw alexander somebody that had worked with cook for a long time but but uh klein was also found to be a, a, a an owner of the company the contracts were very vague all right. I don't know why Cook allowed this. I think he, he really just made a mistake going with Klein, obviously. Uh, RCA Victor in this deal would get exclusive distribution rights in exchange for 6% royalty payments, okay, and payments for the recording sessions. Now, for tax reasons, Sam Cook 
would receive at first stock in Tracy Limited. They were just trying to shelter some of his money so he wouldn't yeah. have to pay taxes. Okay, now uh, normally you get like an advance of like a hundred grand and something like this, but he opted for for stock options in Tracy Limited. Okay, now you know Klein um, would would uh, I'm sorry Cook would receive uh, cash advances of a hundred grand for the next two years after that first year, followed by an additional seventy thousand for each of the two option years if that deal went to turn. I watched an interesting documentary last night about it and the contracts there was, there's a guy that was, uh, he's been investigating this for years and these contracts, it was interesting. There was a champ. There was, there was a board of directors and every so often these board of directors would change. Okay. It might be every couple of months and slowly you see Klein moving up and cook, eventually gets made like secretary. How that how'd that happen? Okay. So this this deal with Klein was a deal with the devil. Okay. Yeah. You know, it really was. Now, despite the autistic and certainly financial successes Cook had in his life, his personal life was marked by a lot of turmoil and tragedy. Okay. Uh Cook was married twice. Yeah. His first marriage was to singer-dancer Dolores Elizabeth Milligan, who took the name Milligan Cook. Um, she used a stage name called Dee Dee Mohawk. <laughs> Dee Dee Mohawk. What his name? Yeah. Uh, that was in 1953. She took that name. She was a performer. They ended up divorcing in 1958. She was killed in a car crash in Fresno, California, the following year in 1959. Now, although he was divorced from, from Dolores at the time, Sam paid for all the funeral expenses. Um, she was survived by her son, Joey. Now, in 1958, that, that same year that he got divorced, he married his second wife, Barbara Campbell, from Chicago. Uh, they got married in Chicago. Um, his father performed the ceremony. They had three children, Linda who was actually born in 1953 while he was still married to Dolores. Okay. So he'd been with this woman for a while. Yeah. Um, their daughter, Tracy was born in 1960 and in Vincent was born in 1961, but he would die tragically in a drowning accident in the family swimming pool in 1963. He was a baby. Um, less than three months after Cook's own death, his widow Barbara married his friend Bobby Womack. Barbara and Womack would divorce eventually in a few years after she discovered Womack was having an affair with Sam Cook's 17-year-old daughter, Linda. Wow. <laughs> okay. Then it gets even stranger. Linda would eventually marry the other Womack Okay, Cecil, not Bobby, even though she had an affair with him. Okay, yeah. she would marry Cecil Womack, and they became the famous duo Womack and Womack that wrote for a lot of people in the 80s. Uh, they were more bigger in the UK, but they, they had some success here in the United States too. 
Um, Sam Cooke also fathered supposedly at least three children out of wedlock. In 1958, a woman in Philadelphia named Connie Bowling claimed that Sam was the father of her son. Now, this was right at the beginning of his career, his solo career. So Cook paid her an estimated $5,000 in an out-of-court settlement. Um, in November 1958, Cook was involved in a car accident when he was going from St. Louis to Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, his chauffeur, Edward Cunningham, was killed in that crash, while Sam Cook, guitarist Cliff White, and singer Lou Rawls were, were all hospitalized. Wow. Um, and tragically, Sam Cook himself was killed at the age of 33 on December 11th, 1964 at the Hacienda Motel in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, it's located on 91st and South Figueroa Street. Uh, answering separate reports of a shooting and a kidnapping at the motel, the police found Cook's body there. He had sustained a gunshot wound to the chest, which had gone through his heart, killed him. Now, the motel manager was named Bertha Franklin. She said she shot Cook in self-defense, that he was attacking her. But her account was immediately disputed by many of Cook's acquaintances. Um, however, the motel owner, whose name was Evelyn Carr, said that she had been on the phone with Franklin at the time of the incident, said she heard everything. She heard uh, Cook's intrusion into the office and the ensuing conflict and argument and then the gunshot. And she called police, too. Okay. Now, the police record states that Franklin fatally shot Cook, who had checked in earlier that evening. Franklin said that Cook had banged on the door of her office shouting, where's the girl, where's the girl, in reference to Elisa, Elisa Boyer, uh, an Asian woman who had accompanied Cook to the motel and who had called the police that night from a telephone booth near the hotel motel minutes before Carr, Evelyn Carr, had called. So something was going on here. Yeah. Now, Cook was struck once in the torso, according to Franklin, he exclaimed, lady, you shot me, like almost like, like confused rather than angry. Okay, like, like asking, you know, you shot me. Um, but he advanced on her again, and she hit him on the head with a broomstick before he fell to the floor dead. Now, a coroner's inquest was convened right away to investigate the incident. Elisa Boyer said she ran first to the manager's office out of the room they were in and knocked on the door seeking help. Um, her story was that he tried to rape her. Wow. And, yeah, but, you know, earlier in the evening, uh, they, were to, they were seen together in a restaurant, okay, with other friends, all right? Now... When she ran out of the room, she said the manager took too long to answer the door. So fearing Cook would soon be coming after her, she fled the motel before the manager even opened the door. And she said then that she put her clothes back on, hid Cook's clothing, went to a phone booth, and called the police. Now, Elisa Boyer's account is the only one that exists 
of what happened between her and Cook, all right, that night. And it's always been called into question inconsistencies between her version of events and details reported by diners at Martoni's restaurant, which was a hangout of Cook's, okay, in Los Angeles. Uh, he was there that night having dinner, drinking, okay. Um, you know, there really was no doubt, according to the witnesses, that they left, she left with Cook willingly. Her argument was that he kidnapped her somehow, okay? But she was a known prostitute, from what I've heard, okay? So yeah. there's something going on there. Now, um, some people say that she went willingly to the hotel in order to rob him. He was flashing a lot of money that night. Okay, he had like a lot of bills. That money was never found after after the shooting. Okay, they found like a couple of dollars on him and, and about 20 bucks in his car. So according to restaurant employees at Martoni's and friends, Cook was carrying a large amount of money. Okay, but, you know, they actually found this $20 bill uh, in the Ferrari he was driving. And uh, no, excuse me, they found $20 on him. And they found $108 in a money clip in his Ferrari. Okay. And some change in the ashtray. That's all. But he was he had a lot, a large amount of money on him. Now, in addition, because Carr's version, Evelyn Carr, the owner on the phone, corroborated Franklin's version, the shooter. Uh, and because both Boyer and Franklin later passed polygraph tests, the coroner's jury ultimately accepted Franklin's explanation and returned a verdict of justifiable homicide. With that verdict, authorities officially closed the case on Cook's death. Now, wow. what's strange is, is you go back and you, and, and you check this out, and the, the trial, this, this, this inquest, was done five days after he was shot. That's all the investigating they did, five days' worth. Not a lot, right? So uh, some of Cook's family and supporters, however, have always rejected Boy's version of the events, as yeah. well as those given by Franklin and Carr. They believe that there was a wider conspiracy to murder Cook and that the murder occurred in, occurred in some manner entirely different for the official accounts. Um, on the perceived lack of investigation, Cook's close friend, Muhammad Ali, said if Cook had been Frank Sinatra, the Beatles, or Ricky Nelson, the FBI would be investigating this. Uh, they were saying because he was a black singer, they weren't really investigating. Um, there might be some truth to that. There was a, in Los Angeles at the time, there was, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the police department wasn't exactly fair. Uh, yeah. There was a there was a place called uh I, I think it was called uh, Hollywood Dolphins Record Store. Uh, I might have the name slightly off, but the, the guy's name was Dolphin, black guy, and he opened up a, a, a record store in South Central uh, L.A., which was a, a well-known black neighborhood, uh, still is. And uh, what it was attracting was people into this R&B music, and it wasn't just attracting black kids. Okay, it was attracting a lot of white kids into South Central. And the police had an active policy of telling these 
these white kids that were going into the neighborhood. If you go in there, you're going to get gang raped. You're going to get killed. Someone's going to do something to you. And they would tell these people not to, I mean, it was, you know, they were just trying to be, you know, keep, keep things segregated. Okay. But the world was changing and people were getting into this kinds of music and, you know, it wasn't going to stop them. So yeah. I think, I think that there is some truth to, you know, the, the racism element of it, but, uh, Cook was doing something, okay, because he was with <laughs> he was with this chick, okay, in, in a in a motel, and you know why you know why would he go to a, a sleazy motel when he was Sam Cook? You know, it seems like, you know, it seems odd, but who knows? He might have been lumped up, not thinking straight. You know what I mean? Now, um, singer Edda James viewed Cook's body before his funeral and questioned the accuracy of the official version of the events. She wrote that for the, that the, the injuries she observed were well beyond the official account. Okay. Of cook having just fought Franklin alone. James wrote that cook had been beaten very badly, so badly that his head was nearly separated from his shoulders. Okay. Uh, his hands were broken and twisted and crushed, and his nose was mangled. Now, there's a picture of Sam Cooke, which you could find in his coffin. Okay? At, at There were two viewings, okay, at one of the viewings. I believe it was the one in Chicago. Um, and his hands are like this, okay? But his fingers are, like, mangled. Like they like crossed over like this. Wow. It's weird. It's it's. I don't know why a funeral director would have even put his le you know left his hands like that. Okay, but you can see it. Um, now some have speculated that Cook's manager, Alan Klein, had a role in his death. Mm. Uh, Klein, at the time of his death, had finagled his way into owning Tracy Limited. Okay which ultimately owned all the rights to Cook's music. However, no concrete evidence supporting a criminal conspiracy of that kind has ever been presented. All right. The only evidence that they have is that Cook was, was slowly pushed out of his own rights and Klein took over. So, wow. yeah, you have that. Okay. Contracts were signed. Okay, saying this, but you know, were they fraudulently done? Who knows? Okay, now the first funeral, there were two free funeral services. The first funeral service for Cook was held on December 18th, 1964, at the AR Leak Funeral Home in Chicago. 200,000 fans lined up on over four city blocks to view his body. Afterward, his body was flown back to Los Angeles for a second service at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church on December 19th, which included a much heralded performance of The Angels Keep Watching Over Me by Ray Charles. Ray Charles was standing in for gospel singer Bessie Griffin, who was so stricken with grief that she couldn't perform. Um, Cook was interred at Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Glendale, California. Um, immediately after his death, two singles and an album was released. Uh, one of the singles called Shake 
reached the top 10 on both the R&B and pop charts. The B-side was called The Change Is Gonna Come, one of his greatest songs, which was used yeah. extensively uh, in the civil rights movement in the 60s and was actually brought back uh, when Barack Obama was running for office. There was yeah. His song was being played at Obama rallies, I understand. Um, now, that song, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come, uh, was a top 40 hit and also a top 10 R&B hit as well. The album itself was called Shake, and it reached number one spot on uh, on the R&B album charts as well. Bertha Franklin, the woman who shot him, uh, claimed that she re started receiving numerous death threats after shooting Cook. She left her position at the Hacienda Motel and did not publicly disclose where she had moved. After being cleared by the coroner's jury, she ended up suing the Cook estate citing physical injuries and mental anguish suffered as a result of Cook's attack. Her lawsuit sought $200,000 in compensatory and punitive damages. Barbara Womack, who was Barbara Cook right before that, uh, Cook's widow, countersued Franklin on behalf of the estate, seeking $7,000 in damages to cover Cook's funeral costs. Elisa Boyer provided testimony in support of Franklin in the case, and it took until 1967 when a jury ruled in favor of Franklin on both counts, awarding her $30,000 out of Yeah, in damages. So not only did she shoot him, okay, she got $30,000 in the process. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're going to go back to this at some point this year, maybe with a conspiracy 420 show. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more information I can give about the death. I'd like to save that for another show, but really the emphasis today was on his career. And, uh, I'm glad we did this show because Sam Cooke kind of today, he, he, he's, of course, his music is still out there and people, oh, listen. Yeah. but I think, I think, uh, I think it needs a little bump. I'm glad we did a show on this. You know, yeah, definitely, man. I learned a lot, man. That that whole thing with the death, I never really realized. I knew he was shot to death, but I didn't realize it was like in a motel, and it was like, and um, for what people say, that thing he he got beat up or something else happened. Well, so, if you, know, you see, if you know, according to people that witnessed the body, you know, the beating he took couldn't have come from a broomstick. Yeah. Okay, and she had already shot him when she said she hit him with a stick. So how many yeah. times did you have to hit him with the stick? He got, yeah. he got, he got, you know, some are saying that he got killed somewhere else and placed there. But, you know, even back then with the forensics not being great, um, you would find probably blood, something on the way, you know, you're taking something in. Yeah. Blood would, blood would end up on the floor. They'd find that and they'd say, well, this body was placed here. There was no evidence of that. But you got to wonder, what was he thinking? Okay, what was Cook thinking? All right, well, obviously he was looking for a piece of ass. I mean, I hate to be disrespectful, but I think that's what was going on there. Okay, and, uh, you know, it, it just turned deadly for him, you know? Wow. Yeah. All right, Mike, another great show. Another, uh, the first one for the Black History Month. Um 
and Rock and Mike, where can we uh, find you if we need to get in touch with you? Okay, I'm on Instagram, Rocker Mike 212. I'm on uh, Getter. I'm on Truth Social. I'm on MeWe. I'm on Cloud Hub. I'm on Parlor, all under Rocker Mike. You can find me on Twitter, Rocker Mike 212. And on Facebook, you can find me as Rocko Mike, Rocko Mike. And of course, we have the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook. Check it out, post some music join the group have some fun we put stuff up every day so where can we find you rob and you can find me just look up getting lumped up or look up rob rossi and you will find me in multiple um um what you call it um sites you know like an instagram twitter um and uh facebook pretty much so if you look at those sites and the website also uh getting lumped up.com and um also, if you like this show, please uh, hit the like button. The more likes we get, uh, and subscribe, more, uh, the more people will get. Um, you know, the more sponsor we get, the more people we get. So uh, just like the show and um, subscribe. But the likes are definitely important. Get a lot of likes, and the show will move up, and more people will watch them. Definitely, definitely. And on that note, remember, people, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. And we see you next week. Take care, people. I wanna get lumped up tonight. Listen to Rob Ross and get rock of mine. On the only podcast that I'll hear. Rip off my ear